A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Abu Bakr, al-Baghdadi, the caliph, the would-be soi disant, self-declared caliph. I'm optimistic that this time he's dead, even though they've killed him several times before. And if he died in the way that President Trump said that he died, that would be entirely fitting too, because we all know that underneath bullies are usually cowards those who send other men, women, and children to their deaths with gay abandon have uh, no care about their blood and plenty about our own. Now, Donald, uh, the way Trump described it, I inferred that Trump himself had personally strangled al-Baghdadi, though he has a big neck and President Trump has very small dino hands. So I don't know how that would have worked. But President Trump said that he watched it all, or most of it, along with the military top brass, and I think the Vice President Pence and the Secretary of State Pompeo, they took the usual picture. They didn't, they spared us the Hillary Clinton. We came, we saw he died, they spared us that, but they gloried in what they say was the ignominious way that al-Baghdadi, the so-called caliph, met his death running into a tunnel that had no exit, dragging his children with him, abandoning his two wives uh, who met their deaths. Uh, we don't know how. It was first reported that the wives had blown themselves up. President Trump has contradicted that. But they say, Trump says, that Baghdadi dragged his children into this tunnel and then crying and whimpering as he was being attacked by American talented canines, as only Donald Trump could put it, he blew himself and his children to smithereens, a fate that he had delivered to countless others over the awesome, awful period of that dreadful so-called caliphate, which at its height had eight million people under its iron heel. The amount of territory uh, that it occupied, stretching from uh, one end of Syria all the way to the other end of Iraq, including the great, beautiful, priceless jewel of the city of Mosul, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multi-religious jewel of a place, was captured by al-Baghdadi. That's where he made his famous oration uh, from the uh, mosque there, and of course, uh, this death cult that is ISIS visited. Death, mutilation, murder, mayhem, and all kinds of injustice on millions of people. They pioneered uh, the taking of tens of thousands of women into sexual slavery, justifying this as the spoils of war. Uh, they mutilated people, crucified them, cut off their heads, cut out their hearts, and ate them. Monsters, absolute 
monsters, a blood and death cult. The problem is it ain't over even if al-Baghdadi is, because the conditions which gave rise to ISIS and al-Qaeda before it have not gone away. As a matter of fact, the swamp from which these people climbed in the first place has deepened endlessly, deepened in the period of the 21st century and indeed longer. Uh, and in that swamp curdles many more monsters. Believe me on that. So we'll be running a poll. It's on my Twitter, apparently, uh, which is at George Galloway. Uh, do you believe that al-Baghdadi is really dead? I ask because until they release pictures, until they release video, uh, then many of us will be as skeptical about the end of al-Baghdadi as we were about his emergence. I never believed that ISIS were what they said they were, what we were told they were. I never believed they had the numbers then uh, that they said they had. And I don't believe that they have the lack of numbers now that equally they say they have. And pictures is the clue. Let me just put it to you this way. This is an era where a satellite can show me brushing my teeth in the morning in my bathroom, in my house. But I have never seen any pictures of significant numbers of ISIS fighters. If so many of them have been killed that the ISIS phenomenon is now said to be militarily defunct, where are the dead bodies? I have never seen pictures of significant numbers of dead ISIS bodies, and I'm someone who wishes them all dead. But I have never seen the photographic evidence that that is so. I also never believed that ISIS came so suddenly to such a powerful military position that they could occupy all that territory, that they could move across all that territory, whilst coalition warplanes were supposedly in the skies looking for them. If they were moving in ones and twos, yes. But you can't control an empire, a caliphate that size, by moving your people in ones and twos. So where were the convoys? And if the convoys existed, why weren't they being bombed, strafed, hit with missiles, wiped out on the roads on which they were traveling. There's something about the ISIS story that doesn't add up for me. Now, I know uh, as well as most people, not as well as Patrick Coburn, who will be uh, our guest uh, in this show, the doyen of uh, foreign correspondence, man who is the biographer, in a way, of ISIS. I don't know as well as him. Uh, but I know better than most that when the idiot Paul Bremer uh, sacked the entire Iraqi army, cashiered every Iraqi military officer, debathified the state machine, that there was a huge influx of military prowess out of the official Iraqi armed forces into uh, what mutated over time 
into ISIS, first into Al-Qaeda, behind uh, al-Zarqawi, and other leaders. I know all of that. But I'm not persuaded that we know the full story about ISIS yet. I'm not persuaded about the extent to which some people, some countries, some states, some intelligence apparati were behind them, assisting them, strengthening them on the principle, the age-old and utterly immoral principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. That should have long been discredited as an approach to international politics, but if your friend is ISIS and al-Baghdadi, then you are in deep moral trouble. Your soul is compromised and sacrificed beyond all redemption. Of course, we're not only talking about ISIS and al-Baghdadi this evening. The uh, Labour Party was uh, stuck today on the big stuff. What percentage of giraffes are gay? I'm not making that up. As the world was in flames, as millions moved against austerity, poverty, government corruption, from Lebanon to Santiago, uh, through Ecuador and Haiti, and of course ongoing in Catalonia and in France, a Labour frontbencher uh, who is a putative leadership contender, I'm not making that up either, Don Butler, the MP for a North London constituency for whom the taxpayer was at one stage paying for a house in North London and a house in South London. Well, if you're a London MP, you kind of need two houses, don't you? Anyway, Don Butler, addressing uh, an event uh, the other night, declared, and I'm quoting, that 99% of all giraffes are gay, which, if true, would have made them, an, in evolutionary terms, an absolute miracle, because lacking access to uh, the kind of IVF uh, facilities that others can avail themselves of, unless they're giraffes, it's remarkable that the species survived so long in such numbers, if 99% of them were gay. This was answered by a top official in Jeremy Corbyn's office, who is a giraffe expert, who knew that Jeremy Corbyn was employing such talent, who basically said in terms that Don Butler was talking through a hole in her hat. She had done the numbers wrong. She hadn't been accounting properly. What is it with Labour frontbenchers and numbers? But it turns out, thanks to the forensic detective skills of my colleague, the cleverest man in England, Adam Gary, that Don Butler got that statistic from Ali G. Ali G is in the house and he's being repeated from public platforms by someone who imagines that she should be the next leader of the Labour Party. Not that the current leader of the Labour Party 
is able to do much leading at the moment. His front bench are in open, brazen, defiant revolt of him. And not just on the subject of the sexual proclivities of giraffes, but more important things. The Labour Party conference last month, the Labour Party shadow cabinet last week said that Labour wanted a general election and then negotiate a new Brexit deal and then put it to the people in a referendum. But John McDonnell, as late as this day, is openly demanding a second referendum now, before a general election, before a renegotiated Labour deal. And he's supposed to be number two in the Labour Party's hierarchy. All over the country, candidates supporting Jeremy Corbyn are being kept off short lists, even long lists, in favour of people they scarcely know, if they know at all. There's one in Nottingham I've just been reading about, where a woman who's the chair of the constituency Labour Party has failed to make the long list of candidates. And the police have just been called this day to the Labour Party's selection meeting. So, frankly, it's the end for Jeremy Corbyn. His Brexit policy is not being followed even by his closest colleagues. His chief of staff has been banished from his office, retaining the name and the salary, but banished to another building, another part of central London. His candidates are not even being allowed onto the ballot paper in local selections, such as they are. And of course, the general election is who knows when. Jeremy Corbyn demanded a general election 36 times this year, 2019, in public, in Parliament. And now he's being forced by his colleagues to turn one down. Although, if the other minority parties can lash up with the government for a price, no doubt, there might yet be a December general election. And lastly, we'll be talking about Julian Assange. Not just because he's important, uh, but because we are important. Justice in our country is important. Our courts, our judges are important. Our national sovereignty is important. And I'll be talking to the Honorable Craig Murray, former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, a man who served in the Foreign Office at a high level for many years, who was actually present at the farcical, tragic and farcical hearing that Julian underwent last week, early last week, and in which the British judge laughed in his face 
laughed in the face of justice. And the British attorneys literally took their orders from U.S. government officials sitting behind them. That's right. Your attorneys, paid by you, paid by your taxes, engaged by your Justice Department here in Britain, was taking its instructions from officials of a foreign government behind them. And a British judge, if we can fairly apply the term judge to her, was smirking and laughing in the face of the most important political prisoner in the world today. I'm joined again. I'd like to say I'm glad to be joined again. <coughs> But I regret the reason why I'm joined again with Professor Alan Sked, the man that invented, invented Brexit. The founder of UKIP and eminent political historian is only back here because turns out we're not Brexiting, Professor. No, not yet, but I still hope we shall. Yeah, but exactly when I'm not sure. Yeah, and quite, I'm not I sure mean, on which what's the basis of your hope? Well, uh, there will be an extension uh, at the worst to the 31st of January, but I suspect if the House of Commons plays silly buggers with uh, Boris's uh, uh, motion tomorrow to get an election, then uh, Monsieur Macron, the President of France, might get very fed up and just say, well, I'm not granting an extension, or I'm only going to grant a very short one, and you'll have to concentrate your minds and it'll either be Boris's deal or no deal, in which case I presume it would be Boris's deal. But uh, given that they haven't granted an extension yet, I presume that behind the scenes Macron is active and I don't think he'll be very pleased with Parliament reaching no conclusion again tomorrow. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're right about that. So let's analyse uh, how Macron came to this position. Because he was not always, I mean, he was pretty hostile to the idea of Brexit uh, in the beginning. But now he, seem, now, now he seems like he can't wait to get on with it. Uh, wh what happened? Is it the force of Boris Johnson's personality? Is it their, the commonalities in their politics? What? Well, he seems to be won over when he met Boris personally because, like everybody else, he had dismissed Boris as a buffoon. Uh, and then after the meeting, he was saying things like, no, this man is a strategic genius. He knows what he wants, uh, and he's going to get it. We mustn't underestimate him. We should see him for the, the good leader he is. Um, but I think also just three and a half years of getting nowhere has taken its toll. That There's Brexit fatigue uh, in Brussels and Paris as well as in Britain. Uh, and the idea that they should more or less start all over again and have to wait maybe uh, up to a year for the election, referendum, whatever it is, it's just too much to contemplate. Uh, so they want a deal. They've got a deal now. With, they had one with May, which Parliament didn't accept, uh, rejected three times. Now they've got one with Boris, which Parliament in principle has accepted. In principle, yes. Yeah, in principle. But the devil's in the detail, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, but... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, I, I think they want that signed up and delivered very, very quickly, at least Macron, I think, does, because he wants to go on and become the new leader of Europe. Merkel's star is fading and she'll soon disappear. Uh, and uh, he wants to dominate Europe, and he doesn't want British obstructionism, which is what he would get if Britain was still in. So I think for his plans for Europe, uh, he, he would prefer Britain not to be there, so he needs a deal. So Parliament is the very definition of stasis at the moment. It will not agree a timetable for uh, consideration of the deal. It will not agree, cannot agree on a different deal. And it will not dissolve itself and allow the public to have their say. You know, there are some countries at some times where that conjunction would have pro provoked a coup because uh, effectively Britain is not being governed at the minute. Yeah. That's perfectly true and there doesn't seem to be any obvious way out of it. I mean in Syria we could have this stasis go on until the five-year parliament runs out in 2022. Uh, at one point the Labour Party <laughs> must decide that it can run an election but at the moment I think it's scared of an election. Uh, the leadership of the Labour Party is split. Uh, I think Corbyn and his closest friends would ideally like an election, uh, but MacDonald uh, and, and most Labour MPs are afraid of the result, and so they're trying to stop them going into one, because the polls are very bad for Labour right now. Uh, Tories are 16 points ahead in the yeah, latest poll. And whereas Corbyn managed to come up during the last election, largely due to the... Uh, stupidity of Theresa May as a campaign. He's also a great campaigner, or he, he was. Yeah, in, yes. He was then. Yeah. Whether he's but still this, got the stamina now. This time he's up against Boris, who's a quite different yeah. type of campaigner, uh, who, who's got momentum behind them, mm -hmm. who's very attractive, uh, charismatic, uh, and can. Well, I'll go with charismatic. All right. <laughs> and who can appeal to parts of the electorate that make it never reach. So um, I think Labour is running scared. Well, let me let me. Uh, uh, just buttress that point. I heard uh, the veteran, uh, you couldn't call her anything else, Margaret Beckett uh, on the, uh, the radio, Radio 4, BBC, the other morning. Uh, now, I'm so old, I remember when Margaret Beckett was an anti-EU fanatic, when she ran against Dick Taverne, you recall? Yes, yes. Dick yes. Taverne, who was a huge Europhile, and she was uh, his opponent and there was no good word would cross her lips about the then common market. Now, she has, like so many of them, metamorphosed into a great defender of the EU. Anyway, when being pressed on BBC, 
why she didn't want a general election. She said this. She said, you know, there's a phenomenon in politics that someone should uh, write a book about. It's called safe seat syndrome. All the people who are demanding a general election imagine themselves to be in safe seats, and all the people who don't want a gen general election uh, are people who are not in safe seats, which was, whether she meant it or not, an absolute admission that people are sitting in their seats for fear of losing them. And to hell with how the public uh, see it, to hell with how governance in Britain uh, is affected by it. I'm not going to vote for a general election because I might lose my seat. QED, I thought, when I heard her. Yeah, and that must be true of uh, these now independents who deserted Labour and the yeah. Tories, uh, who probably have no chance at all of being re-elected, and uh, that must account for about 16 uh, MPs, and um, some of them are going to run as Lib Dems, but they're running in, in seats which literally aren't Lib Dems, uh, aren't Lib Dem strongholds, so they're probably going to lose. And with any luck, we'll say goodbye to Anna Subri and Chukabuna and all sorts of people. Uh, but, you know, we need an election. As you say, it's in stasis just now, uh, and the only way to resolve this is to have an election. But who knows? Now, you're, you're a, a historian, a political historian, too. Uh, have we ever had a December election since the first one that Labour won? Wasn't the, what, didn't MacDonald win in December? I think he did, um, but it's, no, it's highly, highly unusual. I mean, usually you have them in it's the spring. It's a hundred years. You know, mm. you have them in the spring or the, the autumn on a Thursday, and, um, you know, it's, it's usually May, June or October, so um, it would be unusual, yeah. Yeah, there's no reason to necessarily conclude, though, that people wouldn't go out and vote. No, I think people will go out and vote, and partly it depends on the weather. If you've got huge snowstorms or the beast comes from the east again or something, they may not want to trudge through three feet of snow. But otherwise, I'd have thought, you know, very often the weather in December isn't very different from the weather in October. The, supporters, the, support, well, quite, <laughs> the supporters of Brexit, would their propensity to vote would, of course, be... Uh, higher uh, because they're mad, angry uh, at, uh, at how this Brexit decision simply hasn't been implemented. Yes, yeah, so there are all these Remainers who will be getting their green wellies on and trudging out and you know, want to save their cabin barrel. But they'd have to come back from Gestad where they were. Oh, that's on their true. It might, it might interfere with the skiing, I agree. Now, um, let's assume that the election is turned down. On Monday, I think we can say that Labour will abstain. There is this other third way that is proposed a one line bill mm -hmm. uh, which only needs uh, a majority yeah. of one, but has the, I think, considerable disadvantage that it's amendable. So you put down that bill uh, and then people table amendments to it. Uh, I see some of them floating around like reduce the voting age to 16, um, uh, add, a, add uh, uh, various other uh, qualifications uh, to it, and the government might emerge with a majority for a bill which isn't uh, actually the one that they tabled in the first place. Is that a realistic gore, do you think? Um, no, because I think... Well, it, it's possible. I mean, it depends where the... They can negotiate so such amendments aren't tabled, but um, 
uh, they're thinking about it if they don't get their own uh, motion passed. Um, they said they want to explore tempting. other possibilities. Yes, it must yeah. be tempting. But, um, you know, if it's amended in the way you say, they might not accept it. I don't think they would accept it under these circumstances, and so you'd end up with stalemate again. In which case, Macron uh, would he come comes in, into play. and then, then he, what he says counts. I, isn't, aren't we beginning to glimpse now what the most likely outcome is? That Britain refuses a general election, but the House of Commons eventually, perhaps before Christmas, passes the Boris Johnson deal? Yeah, I think that's looking likely. And then there'll have to be an election in January or sometime, mm. which won't be any more clement weather, probably worse weather than worse. December. And so because Boris can't continue with the complete lack of a majority for other matters, obviously. It's not just... I mean, getting Brexit done is one thing. I bet they've got all the negotiations and so on about the terms of that in going forward. But he's got a Queen's speech through the House of Commons, but he has no majority in the House of Commons mm. to enact it. Yeah. So you end up with the eternal stasis till 2022. One other thing that may be a factor is that uh, Berkov, of course, retires on the 31st of October. Well, yes. So we may... If we can take him at his word. Oh, yes, that's true. He's, he's done it before. Yeah, so he may change like his mind. Like al-Baghdadi, you know, he's been killed several <laughs> but, times. But, but if, he, if he does retire on the 31st of October, then it's possible that the next speaker, his successor, uh, may be more rational and more uh, willing to abide by convention and may not give the House the ability to... It's also possible that it could be Harriet Harman. Uh, do you think she would just be as bad? I don't know. Worse, I'd You say. may know her, I don't. Uh, I do know her well. Mm -hmm. uh, worse, I'd say. Or worse, of uh, So that... that <laughs> so no don't, happy don't Christmas, count, No, don't count on that being a, a happy All right, so uh, that, that, that's if she's elected, present. of course. Uh, yes, of course, uh, there are other candidates uh, are available. Uh, so, in that case, we're going to have to have you back nearer the time, Professor, if uh, you'll indulge us, because this story is going to run and run. 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 This may go on till 2022, George. Goodness me. <laughs> I hope Just not. Just finally I hope now. It's you, you founded by the end of the year. UKIP, UKIP became identified with uh, the persona of Nigel Farage, then he left. Uh, UKIP has more or less now disappeared up its own fundament. But the Brexit party is still on about 10% of the polls. And we now have the slightly surprising uh, situation where Nigel Farage is probably the most effective critic of Boris Johnson's deal. And he is really quite vociferous against Johnson and the Tories. That killed the possibility of an alliance between the Brexit party and the Tories, do you think? Not just that. The Tories don't want an alliance. Uh, I mean, the leading Tories despise Farage. Uh, and they think that if we get momentum during the election, the Brexit challenge will fade away. I don't know that's going to be the case, but the, I, I do not foresee an alliance under any circumstances. I mean, they'll let Farage... I don't understand Farage's strategy. He's standing, supposedly, uh, in Thurrock, uh, which is a Tory seat with a small majority, and the Tory MP there is an ardent Brexiteer, so I don't know why he's doing it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, he hasn't said he's standing in Thurrock. That is widely uh, reported. Uh, it's not even certain that he will stand anywhere at all. Perhaps a peerage for... He won't get a peerage. Be best, no? No. Not even from Boris Johnson? Not even from Boris Johnson. Especially not from Boris Johnson. Really? Yeah. I guess that rules thee and me out also. <laughs> Well, I'm not waiting for one. You may be. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> Professor Alan Sked, thank you very much indeed no, for joining thank, us thank on you, the mother George. of all, all talk Always shows. a great pleasure. Brexit, al-Baghdadi. How's the poll going now? Let's uh, check. 1,330 people have voted. 50% think he's dead and 50% <laughs> think he's still alive. It is absolutely extraordinary that if our rulers told us that today was Sunday, we'd have to check on the calendar to see whether or not they were lying. If they told us water was wet, we'd check it out first. 50-50. Amazing. If I'd asked my supplementary question, do you think he died the way Donald Trump said that he died, essentially with Trump himself strangling him with his bare hands, I suspect the answer would have been even more skeptical. Anyway, here's Mark on the line from Oklahoma. Mark, welcome to the show. Yes. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Welcome. Go ahead. You know, I'm, I'm aware in uh, America that, you know, 95% of all of our media is controlled by six kilometers. So uh, I'm doing some research. Can you tell me the different years and stuff that he's died before, so I can do some research, and thank you for your show. He died seven times. The last time he died was in 2017. That was the most heavily reported uh, that he had died. Uh, so there's as yet no evidence uh, that he's any deader this time uh, than he was last time. I tend to think that he is dead if I was voting in my poll. I'd vote, uh, if you force me to vote, uh, that he was dead. I don't necessarily believe the circumstances. It's in uh, Trump's obvious political public relations interest to make the whole thing as ignominious as possible. Uh, but uh, I'm not so sure uh, myself. The bigger question of who are ISIS? Who was al-Baghdadi? What was the purpose of, the role of, objectively speaking, of this organization? I don't uh, myself know. 51% now think he's still alive. It's not scientific, but it's very, very uh, interesting. Is Mark still on the line? No, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's, I used to work in radio. I got out of radio when the Fairness Doctrine ended. I saw so many changes. News media today lies to us, but what's more amazing is how many people are asleep in the world. Mm. Well, I, I hear that, Mark, a lot. But I've got to tell you, uh, there's fewer people asleep in the world than there has ever been. I know it's frustrating that there are still so many, but there are fewer asleep than there have ever been. I'm in a good position to say because I've been in politics for more than 50 years, 5-0. And in that 50 years, I can say that the number of people who know, uh, and if I add to them the number of people who know and the number of people who suspect the truth, 
then uh, there are more of us than there have ever been. And I think that goes for right across the world. That's why uh, people like Corbyn at their height uh, did so well. It's why Bernie Sanders did so well. It's why official narratives are overwhelmingly disbelieved. Uh, because, as I put it, ignorance is a choice nowadays. You're choosing to limit your sources of information, knowledge, to the usual suspects, the usual liars, the liars and the, the lies. You're choosing that, because you can equally choose. You can move your uh, thumb just along a bit. You can turn your dial just along a bit. You can easily find, if you want to, people who speak the truth. That's the difference. Mark, uh, Olufemi Okeniyi says, yes, uh, al-Baghdadi dies on average every two to three years and then regenerates. Stuart Marshall says, it's the same as when Osama bin Laden was killed, then killed again by the U.S. and promptly buried at sea. Yeah, right. Lisa Moika says, in the larger scheme of things, does it matter? It's empire's modus operandi. Groom, create chaos, assassinate, create vacuum, rinse and repeat. And Stuart Marshall says, uh, sorry, I've done that one. Bello uh, says he was their creation, just like a cartoon character. They can decide when the story ends. And glyphosate equals cancer says, I'm pretty sure the whole thing is a ruse to keep moats from bringing up Julian Assange, Epstein, Ghislaine, the Prince, and the Finders. Well, that won't work, because <laughs> we'll be talking about Julian Assange very soon. James Coleman says, I guess not, i.e., is Baghdadi still alive? But impeachment talk is in critical condition. Mission accomplished. Martin Moan says, He's in a bed sit with Miss Maxwell and Mr. Epstein. Well, if he is, I dare say they're not alone. And Fat says the guy playing him might be, but there'll be someone to take his place for the next series, depending on where the US, Israel, Britain want to bomb next. And KMM9973 says, George, they're trying to claim it was a CIA op working with Kurds and Iraqis, ignoring Trump, so the deep state can still run domestic and foreign policy and operations. America at war with themselves in Syria. How dangerous is that? Now, earlier this week, as always, I did a quick stand-up for RT on the double standards of Western politicians and their media echo chambers. I opened with Charles Dickens. It was a tale of two cities. Take a look at this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a tale of two cities, Hong Kong and Barcelona. When hundreds of thousands of people protested on the streets of Hong Kong, they were democracy protesters. Freedom fighters only. Thousands of Western journalists flocked thousands of miles all the way to Hong Kong to tell us as much as the shoe size and all the family details of the leaders of the Hong Kong protests. The blatant bias in favor of the Hong Kong protesters 
can be compared and contrasted to the reaction of the Western media and the virtual total silence of Western politicians when it comes to the hundreds of thousands of people in Catalonia protesting about a century, a hundred years of prison time for nine democratically elected Catalan politicians for the grave crime of organizing an unofficial referendum. People putting an X on a piece of paper with a pencil. We're not talking about terrorism or violence. We're talking about a mock referendum. A hundred years in jail. For the avoidance of doubt, I'm not a supporter of Catalan separatism. But I'm even less of a supporter of the brutal repression of peaceful protesters in Catalonia and the imprisonment of political opponents in what is supposed to be a democratic society. The British media, British political class, has been absolutely silent about the outrages taking place every day in Barcelona, in Catalonia. The European Union, that great fortress of freedom and democracy, is struck dumb by what's happening in one of its most important member states. Whilst the entire world has striven might and main to turn the Hong Kong protests into a ramp against China. And the reasons are obvious. They want to weaken China. Any subject will do, from the Dalai Lama, through the Muslim question in Xinjiang, through Falun Gong, anything that they can find to divide and weaken China and slow its progress. If ever there was an example of the blatant way in which Western media acted as a tool for Western foreign policy, it's in the comparison of this tale of two cities. These people have the gall to denounce other broadcasters as state broadcasters, as biased broadcasters, when they themselves have become, if they were not always so, merely a weapon in the hands of the ruling elites in their own societies. What we have is what Dr. Johnson called the grimmest dictatorship of them all, the dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy. Therefore, Hong Kong protesters good, Barcelona protesters bad. Tale of two cities, it could be a tale of three cities or more. The point is, George Orwell, you should be alive this day to see what's happening in the 1984 that 2019 has become. Patrick Coburn, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tell me, first of all, do you think this time he's really dead? It sounds like it. They sound very confident. Uh, I mean, I don't think that they'd uh, really uh, uh, give it such publicity unless it was true. Of course, there's a little doubt left in one's mind simply because I think he's been uh, declared dead about 35 times before. But uh, generally, I, I think it's probably true. And if it's true, uh, what difference will it make? It will make some difference because, you know, a few years ago we had the uh, Islamic State, the Caliphate, the size of Great Britain stretching 
uh, really from the borders of Iran over to the Mediterranean. And that was uh, eliminated. But the one part of the caliphate that had been declared in 2014 uh, that still existed was the caliph himself, al-Baghdadi. So it makes a difference that he's gone. He was a sort of symbol of the caliphate, uh, and now he's dead. It doesn't mean that uh, ISIS is out of business, but this is certainly a blow to them. And how did he emerge as the top dog, Patrick? Well, I think because he survived for a bit. You know, the uh, first of all, we had al-Qaeda in Iraq set up in 2004 by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. He was killed in 2006, and two, two other leaders took over. They were killed in 2010. And al-Baghdadi, who was a, a fairly obscure, or at least a figure that nobody knew much about, emerged as the new leader. He was a political prisoner of the Americans after the fall of Baghdad back in 2003 in the Bukha camp. What might have happened to him in there uh, to uh, lead him on his career path, either guided or brutalized uh, and radicalized in that camp? Yeah, it seems to have acted as a sort of university for uh, uh, extreme jihadis uh, like al-Baghdadi. That's the moment they all got to know each other. Uh, they didn't necessarily know each other before, but they all got to know each other there. Uh, he wasn't considered a very important figure, so he was out in about 10 months. But uh, uh, the likelihood what is that he met other people there. On the other hand, you know, we know about the prison. We don't know what else he was doing or who he was meeting. So that's a kind of easy explanation. Yes, because some people suspect, you see, that... Uh that the empire is behind the creation of this phenomenon. I, I don't share that view myself, uh, but you'd be surprised how many people out there do believe that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised because I read the comments at the bottom of my articles, and, <laughs> you know, lots of people say, you know, once more Coburn shows his extreme naivete, if not complicity, with, uh, in not immediately recognizing that al-Qaeda was created by the Russians or the Israelis or the Turks or somebody else. As you just said, I think it was an organic growth out of the Sunni Arab community in Iraq and Syria, uh, which was um, uh, deeply uh, unhappy. Uh, uh, protest movements had been suppressed. Uh, and Al-Qaeda um, Al and later ISIS became the vehicle uh, for, their, uh, for their discontent. Uh, so I think that was the way it worked, as you said. Do you, do you share my view that its military edge was considerably sharpened by the uh, grotesquely foolish decision of the occupation forces in Iraq uh, to disband the Iraqi army and disperse unemployed hundreds of thousands of uh, former soldiers and officers? Yeah, it's probably a bad idea, you know, when you've got an army, the Iraqi army, some of which was a bit of a wreck, but, you know, you had well-trained officers there, and suddenly, uh, you know, you put, they're all out of a job. In fact, you're afraid able to get another job. I remember being in, uh, in Mosul in the uh, end of 2003, and, you know, there were uh, about 2,000 officers. Mosul was a big center for the Iraqi army who are trying to obtain forms 
which said that although they'd been in the army, they still were sort of could be employed. Uh, so yeah, I talked to a, a number of them. You know, so you had guys who were uh, being trained uh, all over the place who were having said, you know, we're having to sell our furniture to feed our families. So you know, it's not uh, difficult to imagine a how angry they were and be pretty easy for any movement like Al-Qaeda to recruit them. Now, if we agree uh, that this phenomenon is not a creation of the West or anyone else, uh, it's equally surely true uh, that there are sur surprising interfaces between certain powers and this ISIS phenomenon. I talked earlier in my monologue about how were they able to move significant numbers of fighters across a territory the size of Great Britain, as you've helpfully put it, when there were supposedly warplanes in the air uh, looking to attack them? Yeah, I think uh, there was that. I think that, uh, I think also one might ask, you know, how did 40,000 foreign fighters sort of... Uh, Across the border from Turkey into Syria and join up with uh, with ISIS uh, without uh, anybody impeding them. Uh, so clearly there were powers that didn't necessarily uh, directly support them, but certainly tolerated them and thought that ISIS they could use ISIS in their own interests. Um, and ISIS has always benefited from that, from the division of its enemies, the fact that there are powers who might publicly condemn them but think, well, it would be rather convenient if uh, ISIS weakened the Iraqi government or the Syrian government or whatever it might be, whoever it might be. I mean, so uh, where, where would they get the, for example, the transport? Uh, if, if, if they were 100,000 strong at one stage, how do you move 100,000 people around? You move them in Toyota, trucks, in Jeeps, and vehicles of all kinds, where would they get them? Where would they get the money for them? Who exported them to them? Well, um, uh, you know, you could buy them. Um, you know, somebody might make it easy for you to do that. Uh, same with weapons. You know, this is a big arms market. But if we could go back a little, I mean, I think that people are asking, you know, how much did al-Baghdadi do to create this organization? But he was very lucky when he took over in 2010, because then we had the Arab Spring, we have the Syrian government weakening, we have the, uh, the government uh, weaker in Baghdad. Uh, so he was able to take that uh, opportunity, and ISIS was able to grow then. But we still don't quite know how much al-Baghdadi was responsible for this and how much that things were just moving in his direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good point. Um, I have read nothing and seen nothing uh, that suggested that he was uh, a person, a figure of particular note, uh, neither theologically uh, nor politically nor strategically in military uh, terms. It could be that he was just on the, the face on the coins, on the, on the bills, couldn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, you know, not only did he not have any good ideas, he seems to 
ISIS under his supposed leadership had some very bad ideas. I mean, they attacked the Kurds in Iraq and Syria, who would have quite liked to have stayed neutral, would have been quite happy for uh, ISIS to head for Baghdad or Damascus at that time. Why did he do it? Did some foreign power edge him towards it? Or did it, were they just a, a fanatical organization that the only way they could react to anybody or anything that they didn't much like was with extreme violence? Uh, you know, there are still sort of mysteries about what, what ISIS did. You know, was this just a fanatical organization run wild? Uh, or was somebody pushing them in various directions? Uh, well, you see, that, one... that point you just made there, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you did, uh, Kurdish people are overwhelmingly Sunni. Uh, the whole ISIS-Al-Qaeda phenomenon is a Sunni-Islamist uh, phenomenon. Uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda hate nationalism, uh, so it ought to have made no difference to them whether a Sunni was a Kurd or an Arab, and yet they did get into these endless blood feuds with Kurdish Sunni Muslims. Yeah, you know, it remains a mystery to this day. Was it, I mean, one could argue that maybe after they'd taken Mosul, they were, they thought that, you know, this shows divine intervention. God is on our side. Mm. And they were prepared to fight anybody and everybody. Mm. And of course, they did end up fighting anybody and everybody, which was one of the reasons that they lost. Indeed. Um, now, one question I asked rhetorically earlier, where are all the bodies? If ISIS were as big as 100,000 people, I haven't seen any pictures of 100,000 or 90,000 or 80 or 70,000 dead ISIS fighters. Neither have I seen pictures of tens of thousands of ISIS fighters. Uh, were they as big as we said they were? And if they were, mightn't they not be more numerous still than we're led to believe they are? They're probably their core fighting force was a bit less, you know, maybe 25, 30,000. Nobody quite knows. You know, it was a very big place, the caliphate, you know. I remember sort of driving around its northern and eastern edge. You know, and every so often in the far distance, we could see their, you could see their outposts. That must have been manned by a lot of people. But maybe some of, a lot of these will be sort of local tribal levies and so forth who are uh, keeping in with ISIS. It wouldn't be their sort of hardcore fighters, uh, who I agree, you know, were, were much less numerous. Where are the bodies? Well, I don't think there are as many as people said, but I think that a lot of them were killed in uh, Mosul and uh, in Raqqa, which were pretty well, large parts of which were completely leveled by uh, air attack. So finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always, Patrick, uh, the Islamist fanatic phenomenon is definitely not dead, is it? Because the conditions which uh, helped to create it have not gone away, in fact, arguably, have gotten worse. Yes, the ingredients are there. You know, the Sunni Arab community, deeply unhappy. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, they don't have the surprise element they once did. Uh, would they reemerge? You know, they themselves, you know, 
said that you know we 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 reemerged before after they'd uh, been uh, sort of half defeated in Iraq in uh, 2004 to 9 and we can do it again i don't think it'll happen quite like that but as you say the ingredients uh which uh went into their original development are still there and I think it will. They will come back in some form, necessarily, not necessarily under this name, but and not necessarily in the Levant. Uh, I mean, one of the uh, aspects of the, their, for, I mean, Bin Laden went for big, grand, uh, in their own terms, strategic targets, but the ISIS approach was, you know, stabbing a truck driver and grabbing his truck and driving it into. Uh, shoppers and Christmas, Christmas market crowds uh, far away from the Arab lands. Uh, there's no reason to believe that's over, is it? Is there? No, it's kind of sort of, you know, they, they stage these things, you know, in city centres, uh, you know, whether it was around about uh, Westminster, whether it was in the heart of Paris or uh, in uh, Nice, um, you know, to ensure they got maximum publicity. It was always part of their uh, repertoire to give, to carry out atrocities. And of course, most of the atrocities were carried out in Iraq against ordinary Shia, uh, mostly Shia, and, uh, and, um, and also in uh, Syria. Um, they then video their atrocities, you know, in order to uh, uh, project fear uh, and that sort of tactic, grisly though it is, sort of worked and maybe still does. Now, your book, uh, still in print, I'm sure. Uh, where can uh, people get it, The Age of Jihad? Well, I, I know all good bookshops, of course, and also by going on to Amazon. Okay, the, it's uh, on Amazon. Age mm -hmm. of Jihad by Patrick Coburn. It's a terrific book. It was uh, a couple of years ago now, I think, uh, I interviewed you on television about it. It deserves to be widely read. I'm grateful to you, Patrick, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows on this hopefully auspicious evening when the leader, uh, the caliph, as he called himself, it's important to make that point, he declared himself to be the caliph of the caliphate uh, that the Islamic State at least pretended to be. What's your uh, point of view on this? Let me know on the telephone number 0207-798-2255 or if you're in the US 001-757-744-4480. The poll's still running. 2,113 people have voted and the results are that 48% of you think he's dead and 52% of you think he's still alive. You can go to my Twitter feed now, at George Galloway, and vote. Uh, but it is, I think, a, a remarkable thing that nobody believes our leaders, even when they're telling the truth. Let's take a quick break. Now, it was on this day in 1962 that the nuclear clock moved to a minute to midnight. It looked as if the world would end in a bang and not a whimper. It was the 12th day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Missile bases had been set up on the island of Cuba by the Soviet Union 
and Russian freighters were challenging the naval blockade the United States had thrown around the island. The Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, had secretly installed the bases so that the U.S. would feel as threatened by a barrage of missiles as the USSR did. Let's throw a hedgehog in their pants, is how Khrushchev put it. Specifically, he wanted the U.S. to withdraw its nuclear missiles from Turkey, which they did do, but they appear now to be back there. And Donald Trump was threatening war with Turkey just last week. War against a country where U.S. nuclear missiles are being held. Tension had ratcheted the day, uh, uh, ratcheted day by day, and then today in 1962, U.S. U-2 pilot Major Rudolf Anderson was shot down and killed over Cuba. Fortunately, because we're still alive today, U.S. President JFK rightly concluded that Khrushchev had not ordered it. And a day later, on October 28, 1962, Russia announced it would be withdrawing the missiles, and America gave a private undertaking that the missiles would be taken out of Turkey, as they were. Although, as I say, even though the Soviet Union no longer exists, the missiles are back there now. On this day in 1968, 6,000 marchers protesting about the Vietnam War faced up to British police outside the U.S. Embassy in Grosvenor Square in London. It turned to violence as protesters tried to break the police blockade. The protesters had broken away from the main march of some 25,000 who were on their way to Hyde Park. And on this day in 1977, the former Liberal leader, Jeremy Thorpe, denied he had any involvement in a plot to kill former friend and male model, Norman Scott. Is there a more loaded term in the English language than male model? Scott had been lured to a lonely part of Exmoor by a rather inefficient hired killer who claimed to have been offered £5,000 for the hit, but whose gun jammed. He then shot Scott's dog. Thorpe was later charged with conspiracy to murder, but was cleared at his trial. His career, however, was ruined. And the most chilling part of all of that, dear listeners, is that I was there for all of it. I lay in bed on this day in 1962, thinking, because I'd heard my parents talking the night before, that the world was about to end on this day in 1962. I lived quite close to a Royal Air Force air base in Lukers in Fife, and one used to hear the airplanes take off. And I heard an airplane take off and fly overhead my house, and I thought it was an aircraft that was there to drop the nuclear bomb, and I remember that. It still frightens me. I was there when the great anti-Vietnam War movement was boiling up, and I was there in Grosvenor Square when there was 100,000 people confronting mounted police uh, at the height of that movement. I also knew Jeremy Thorpe. And I 
you all about the Norman Scott, Jeremy Thorpe affair, not least because I was then, not now, I quickly add, closely associated with Private Eye, which was then an iconoclastic anti-elite, anti-power magazine, the very opposite of what it has since become. But one of the great figures around Private Eye at that time, and with whom I would lunch practically on a weekly basis, was the late and great writer and journalist Oberon Waugh. Oberon Waugh stood in a by-election somewhere on the campaign promise to find out the truth about what happened to that dog belonging to the male model, Norman Scott. All of that happened on this day, and I was there for all of it. Walter's on the line. He is in Blackpool, and I'd like to hear from him. Walter, go ahead. Well, uh, George, I was a bit concerned earlier when you dismissed as a conspiracy theory uh, the theory that Israel was involved in the creation and development of ISIS. Yeah. Now, first yeah. of all, uh, as you've raised earlier, where do they get all the money from? Where do they get all those shiny Toyotas from? We, we were told they got all their weapons from uh, the weapons that the Iraqi uh, army left behind which is an absolutely incredible story. This was a ragtag army of 7,000 uh, uh, soldiers facing what we were, the, we were told was the best armed Iraqi army uh, ever, and we were told to believe that they fled at the first whip of grape shot. I just don't buy that. We are told that they get their money from oil sales. Where did they get all those marvelous oil engineers from? And who did they sell it to? Are we going to be believe that the Western intelligence services cannot pinpoint those to whom they sell the oil and therefore get their revenue from and, and take them out. I think that the, the whole, also very significant, uh, during the heyday of ISIS, the territory they controlled, um, the uh, Israeli, uh, the, 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 the oil pipeline that supplies Israel with oil ran right through ISIS-controlled territory. They could have disabled where, that in where, a matter of hours. Where? In Syria. But Syria doesn't have an oil pipeline sending oil to Israel. Syria is in a state of war with Israel. Yes, but it ran through that particular part. Which? You're talking nonsense here, Walter. There's well, no pipeline which would take oil from Syria to Israel. That's well, obviously was, uh, preposterous. Because well, uh, Syria is an arch enemy of Israel, has never well, sold a, a drop point. of oil to it. Well, there was certainly a part mm. of the uh, pipeline that ran through uh, ISIS-controlled territory. But not to Israel. How could it? Saddam Hussein didn't sell oil to Israel. Oh, Bashar al-Assad didn't sell oil to Israel. There is no pipeline from Iraq or from Syria into Israel. That's patent nonsense. Now, you were doing quite well until that point. You people are obsessed by pipelines. There's always got to be a pipeline in a story. Yeah, but I, I noticed that earlier, when you raised the subject of where ISIS gets all its money from with Patrick Coburn, yeah. he very quickly changed the subject, didn't no, he? No, he didn't. What, what, is Patrick an Israeli agent? Is that what you're saying? 
I'm not saying that at all, George. I'm well, just what saying then? that. Why would, he was... why would he quickly change the subject? Because, because he, like you, d fails to believe that Israel has something to do with the creation well, and development let's, of ISIS. Let's deconstruct now the points that you were making, uh, many of which had uh, merit and were absolutely valid. But let's start with your first point. Where did they get all these shiny Toyotas from? Exactly. A question I myself asked Patrick. Now, it may very well be uh, that there were states facilitating the delivery of these Toyotas. In fact, I'll go further and say I'm certain that there were. But why would that be Israel? Why has Israel got to be in every picture uh, that you see? I'll well, tell they you, well, Israel doesn't finance things. People finance Israel. Why would yes, Israel and they, finance and ISIS? They in turn, and they, in turn, finance terrorist groups. No, which they don't. The, no, they, they yes, don't. Yes, they do. Israel, they do, George. Israel doesn't give money to anybody. Trust me on that. And why look at Israel? When you next door, you've got far more likely suspects. Well, Saudi Arabia, I'll, for I'll one, tell yeah. You, well, quite. So, but wh yeah. why have you got to drag Israel into it? Well, because they are in cahoots with Saudi Arabia Well, that's this. a different matter. I'm telling you how they got the Toyotas was because of the collaboration of companies in the United Arab Emirates and in Saudi Arabia, largely the latter. That's how they got the Toyotas, because people with government approval virtually certainly ordered from Toyota huge numbers of these Toyota Land Cruisers that ended up on the battlefield in the hands of ISIS. Now, they may have done so as a piece of private enterprise, but I very much doubt it. I believe it was state-sponsored to build up ISIS on the basis that my enemy my enemy's enemy is my friend, as I said earlier. So there's two suspects I've named who do spend money, who've got unlimited money, who don't go around begging money from other people, but who go around giving money to other people. And amongst the people they gave money to was undoubtedly Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Saudi Arabia was the biggest funder of the Al-Qaeda phenomenon before ISIS was even born. So why would it be a surprise if Saudi Arabia and its other satrapies in the Gulf uh, were, were, were not giving money to ISIS? Ditto on weapons. But the most powerful point you made was this. ISIS was stealing the oil of Iraq and Syria during the period that it was occupying these oil fields. But they weren't drinking it, they were selling it. And every person who bought that oil from them is themselves a criminal, is themselves an accomplice of the head choppers and the heart eaters. Amn't I right? Yeah, but the thing, the, the thing is, the combined forces of the Western intelligence services, have they not managed to pinpoint those people to whom they sold the oil and, and take have. them out? Of course uh, why, they Why don't they take, why well, they take them they out They don't then? take them out because they are their allies. That's the point I've been making. It was in the direct interest 
of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and some other satrapies in the area to weaken the government in Baghdad and to weaken the government in Damascus, if possible, to destroy both of them. Not for entirely yeah. the same reasons, but similar reasons. There were other powers who are the patrons of these minor tyrannies like Saudi Arabia, who also had a direct interest in that. And principal amongst those was the United States of America and our own country here in Britain and France and other colonial powers who equally wanted certainly the destruction of the government in Damascus. Ah, now that, that's a very, it's a very interesting point because Israel also has a stake in that yep. because there is such a thing as the Greater Israel uh, Project which mm. wants to expand Israel's borders mm. well into Syria. You might even call it Lebensraum. Well, uh, there's no need or reason to bring in a German word. You can just call it expansion. But, yeah. of course, they're not expanding. They're unable to expand. They have enough trouble holding on to the Arab territories that they currently occupy and hold. They will never occupy Iraq. They will never occupy Syria. And so they're way down the batting order. What I'm getting at is I'm suspicious of you elevating them to the top of the list of rogues and bringing in German words, Nazi words, like Lebensraum. Be gone with you, Walter. I want to talk to Imad in Manchester. Go ahead, Imad. Uh, hi. Hi, George. Hi. Um, uh, I just wanted to comment about, uh, uh, the, about ISIS and uh, whether it's uh, created by uh, the West or not. Yeah, go ahead. There is ample, ample of evidence. I'm a Syrian living in Manchester, mm -hmm. and uh, I know before the close observer that uh, the, the evidence is, is huge that uh, it's the creation of uh, Western intelligence and Israeli intelligence. You have the Joe Biden Park uh, on, uh, at Harvard. Uh, you have uh, John Perry when he was talking to uh, Syrian opposition. Uh, uh, he said that they were uh, expecting in 2013 that uh, ISIS will be created, Khilafah will be created in, the, uh, in Syria, and they were watching and happily watching the uh, attacks on Damascus. That's John Kerry. Mm -hmm. You have uh, uh, a journalist called uh, Biliana, Bulgarian journalist. Uh, she uh, documented the uh, weapons model. So uh, the, uh, the command of ISIS and all these uh, terrorists uh, is central. The, uh, command, the is, command is what? The command of the uh, operations of all sorts of uh, terrorists in Syria is central, including ISIS. You have, if you are a close observer, well, I agree, you see... I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And in fact, there's no attempt by anyone even to disguise that fact and it has come home to roost in in gory technicolor just in the last 10 days the very people that we were arming and funding and propagandizing for the so-called moderate rebels in syria are now described as the uh, 
bloodthirsty, murdering, raping, uh, mutilating uh, vanguard of Erdogan's incursion into Syria. The very same exactly. people. The people exactly. that we were told were moderate rebels when we were funding them now are being called mutilators and murderers now that they are attacking Kurdish people as part of Erdogan's push into Syria. There is absolutely no doubt that the entire attempt to destroy Syria was a Western government-inspired uh, effort and led effort and funded effort. We didn't exactly. part with all the money. The Gulf uh, potentates uh, did most of that heavy lifting, but we gave the orders. We yes. gave the orders but from the beginning. We. There's no need. Yes. There's no reason to look for Israel. Look at the well, look at look at the beam in our own eyes. It was Britain. It was Cameron. It was Hague. It was our own leaders and the American leaders and the French leaders who are responsible for every drop of blood that has been shed in the last nine years now, nearly a decade of mass yeah. murder in Syria. And it was us that did it. Yeah, but it wasn't done randomly. That's the point no, I wanted no, to make. Not at all random. I agree with you entirely on that. All, the only difference between me and the previous caller, apart from the obvious one which ended our conversation, is this. In the Muslim Ummah, there is a, a group, a significant group, of sectarian, fanatic extremists who, for a whole variety of reasons, have become organically extremized, radicalized, to the point that they're prepared to cut other people's hearts out and eat them. And they don't need anybody in London or Washington to tell That's them right. to do it. That took like 50 years uh, Wahhabi uh, teaching around the world. That's right. Uh, it's fermented, uh, but Syria is far away. It's a secular country. Of course. And, uh, and uh, that's why it failed in Syria. Only in some few villages and countryside, some, some extremists uh, were uh, homegrown. Uh, the idea of uh, fanatism in Syria is far away from Syrian mentality, from the psychology of the Syrian society. Sure. I've said, so, I've said so uh, many, many times myself. It might a pleasure to agree with you uh, in Manchester. Al-Baghdadi is still alive. Thousands have voted, and most people so far are unconvinced. Sean Tabrizi says the news that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead is an early Christmas present to him. He won't have to look over his shoulder anymore. And Tendai Chisoro says Sputnik News has indicated that Daesh has named a new successor to al-Baghdadi, Abdullah Kardash. It is alleged that Baghdadi's role as Daesh leader was largely symbolic at the time of his death. What do you say? Yes, I think that's true on both counts. Uh, Aydan says, have we got the dead body? Can we see it? Or are they going to give him a funeral into the sea, according to the custom? And Bass Players Union says, 
The percentage of gay giraffes will be an exciting topic on the doorstep when an election is called. Why do many shadow cabinet members constantly make it more difficult for us foot soldiers when facing the electorate? Help required, please, desperately. And good old rebel says, is al-Baghdadi really dead? You made a poll, but did include the, didn't include the option, hell knows. The mainstream media are just an arm of the globalists. And Dr. Fath, URS, says, George, like the Brexit poll, if your poll ends at 49.51, can we have another Baghdadi poll, a people's Baghdadi poll after this one? As I don't think we've been told the true facts, you're sincerely Alistair Campbell. And Mohammed McDaddy says the CIA will create another ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, or whatever they will call it. Main subject, yes, I think al-Baghdadi is dead, else they wouldn't announce it. And a uh, good friend of the show, Liam Ryan, says, as a badge collector, I had to order a Moats badge and sticker. I was pleasantly surprised. Both only cost £2.50, cheaper than chips. Most badges retail at least £3.50 plus postage and packaging. Okay, the poll so far, is that the exact numbers? My goodness, 2,309 people have voted. 48% of you think he's dead. 52% of you think he's still alive. There's only three minutes left on the poll. So get your vote in now. Not that it'll make any difference to uh, al-Baghdadi. We've got lots and lots of other comment on that. But on line one now is the Honourable Craig Murray, uh, the former British ambassador, foreign office official, a man who knows about injustices and perversions of court processes. He saw them many times as a foreign office official, as an ambassador. And his blog on what happened with Julian Assange at the beginning of last week chilled the blood of anyone who read it. And I'm glad to say he joins us now. Uh, Honourable Craig Murray, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Tell me, uh, summarise for those who didn't read uh, the blog, please. What was the standout for you in the tragic farce in the courtroom last week? Well, there were two, two standouts. The first was Julian's condition. You know, he was in a dreadful physical and mental condition. He couldn't speak properly. He had difficulty remembering his own name and remembering his date of birth. Um, and he was shambling. He's lost an awful lot of weight. He's lost a lot of hair. He's aged about 20 years by the look of him. Uh, he had a very bad limp he didn't have when he went into the prison. Um, so I was, you know, I was very, very worried about his, his condition. The second standout was that the magistrate you know, simply refused to give the defence more time to prepare when they asked, and in particular refused to give them time to await the evidence which is coming out of a court case in Spain where a company which the CIA was paying to spy on Julian Assange in the embassy uh, is, is being prosecuted by the Spanish authorities for that spying. And the, uh, the, the magistrate was simply completely unprepared to listen at all to any arguments from the defence and just agreed to everything the prosecution told her. So, uh, you know, it really was... Uh, 
quite just, just terrible to be in the court that day. Now, compounding uh, those points, uh, now the British have refused the Spanish court the right to interview Julian Assange in connection with the uh, proposed trial of the Spanish company that was doing the spying, amongst other people, on Julian Assange. This is pretty unprecedented, isn't it? Spain is a, a close, friendly country. Its judiciary want to interview a prisoner in Britain, and Britain refuses. Yeah, as far as we know, it's completely unprecedented. I, I mean, they, uh, uh, they, they were trying to interview him under a European uh, treaty, you know, to agree on this kind of cooperation. They, they want to interview him as a witness, not as a, as a suspect. Uh, they asked to do it by, by video link, and they've been refused, and this may hamper the prosecution of this company. Um, and, and this just goes to show you the British government have no interest whatsoever in justice. Uh, they are pursuing an agenda uh, because, of course, the Spanish court case could be extremely helpful to uh, Julian's uh, legal action against extradition, not least because it appears that the CIA not only were spying on his meetings with people like, like me, and, and apparently they did spy on his meetings with me, but they were sp spying on his meetings with his legal counsel when they were discussing his defense against extradition, you know, against all uh, under legal privilege. Um, and as it, the U.S. government is the party applying for extradition, for the U.S. government to be then spying on the person preparing his defense would in absolutely any normal justice system, normal jurisdiction, uh, had the extradition uh, request dismissed out of hand. That spying on privileged conversation uh, would in itself be sufficient to have the extradition request dismissed. It will, uh, it will surprise few that a British government has no interest in justice, but it will surprise, did surprise even me, uh, that the court itself appears to have so little interest in justice. Uh, the justice system is supposed to be independent of government, independent of political power here today, gone tomorrow. And yet the conduct of not just this judge, but a succession of judges before whom Julian has now appeared have seemed to be entirely cavalier with any idea of justice. I think that's true. Uh, nobody could sit in that courtroom and believe they were witnessing a genuine independent justice system. And of course, the other point I haven't mentioned yet is there were, there were five officials from the United States government, probably some from the embassy and some visiting, but five U.S. government officials were sat in the body of the court immediately behind the lawyers, and the prosecution QC was taking instructions directly from the Americans. Um, he himself consulted with them during a recess, and his junior barrister, his junior counsel, was consulting with the Americans while he was speaking on the question of whether or not a delay for the defense should be allowed. And he actually said, I am, I am taking instructions from behind, he said to the judge. And at the moment he said that, his junior counsel was speaking not to the Crown Prosecution Service, but to the American officials who were directly instructing the barrister. 
uh, which is not meant to happen at all. Uh, you know, that is absolutely out of order. The American government asked for the extradition request, but it's the Crown Prosecution Service and the British government who are, uh, Running who the are case. supposed to be enforcing it. You see, yeah. when I read that in your really powerful blog, even by your standards, I, I actually had to read it again, because what it means is they have thrown aside, thrown away even any pretense that this is a British judicial process that's happening here. When you are uh, being employed by the British government, the Crown, but you're taking orders and admitting to the judge that you're taking orders, instructions, they call them, from a foreign government's uh, officials sitting behind you, you've given up any pretense that there's anything British about this case. I think that's absolutely true. You know, the veil has dropped. Normally, of course, you might expect these things happen behind the scenes. You might expect somebody from the Crown Prosecution Service as a cutout who behind the scenes has taken instructions yes. from the Americans. But, but to have the Americans actually in the court directing affairs, and of course, the judge then, or the magistrate, then simply agreed with absolutely everything the prosecution said on, on not one point. Did she even listen, really, to the defence, let alone rule in their favour? So, in effect, the Americans were telling the prosecuting counsel who was telling the magistrate, and the magistrate was simply agreeing. So the Americans might as well have just made all the decisions themselves. Isn't a political case uh, implicitly separate from uh, an ex the extradition rules that exist, a very one-sided set? of extradition rules that we have with the United States. So effectively, we cannot extradite their citizens, but they merely have to ask for the extradition of ours. But aren't political offences specifically excluded from that? And what could be more political than the charges that we now know Julian Assange faces? Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, it, it's worth saying that the charges Julian faces entirely relate to the material he received from Chelsea Manning on war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan and on U.S. secret diplomacy. Uh, nothing to do with Sweden, nothing whatsoever to do with the 2016 election or anything else. It's the evidence he got from uh, Chelsea Manning. Uh, all the charges relate to that. That is... You know, undoubtedly 100% political. And Article 4.1 of the US-UK Extradition Treaty of 2007, sorry, 1997, um, states that you cannot be extradited for a political offence, full stop. Uh, so uh, there's one thing the defence was asking, which was to have that question heard first, because if you can't be extradited for a political offence, why is the whole process going on? And the defence requested a preliminary hearing to discuss whether this is a political offence. But again, the magistrate simply dismissed that completely out of hand after the prosecution counsel objected to it, uh, with no reason given whatsoever as to, as to why she rejected it. What an extraordinary state of affairs, and we're all in your debt for the reportage that you provided. Otherwise, Virtually nobody in this country would know anything about it because the so-called 
mainstream media, even though this is a publisher, a journalist, who's on trial effectively for his life, you can scarcely get a British journalist to take the remotest interest in it. Craig Murray, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, Ask Adam is on after the break. The poll has ended. 2,468 people voted. 48% think al-Baghdadi is dead. 52% think he's still alive. But there's another poll for the last hour on my Twitter feed. The poll is, do you believe that 99% of giraffes are gay? Vote now on Twitter. It's the mother of all talk shows. Many people have already uh, got their questions in uh, for you, Adam. But before that, I'd like your view on Dawn Butler, who is the shadow equalities minister, almost always sitting right next to Jeremy Corbyn at Prime Minister's questions, uh, who addressing a conference this week claimed that 99% of giraffes were gay. Well, you know, Labour's really tackling the big and tall subjects uh, during this election season. Economics, nah. Brexit, let someone else deal with it. But the various proclivities of the world's tallest mammal seem to be the big issue in Labour. But this, I mean, I, I, I love giraffes, not, not in that way, but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe t <laughs> I think they're wonderful, wonderful creatures, um, and observe. I've, I've had the pleasure to observe them in in London. Maybe uh, Miss or Mrs. Butler. I don't know which one. We're getting into all sorts of territory there. Uh, maybe she's had the opportunity to do so too. But the point is, this is symptomatic actually emblematic of what people in the wider country, the undecided voters, the Labour voters who don't really like this cosmopolitan direction Labour's going in, Tory voters, Brexit voters, just about everyone is looking at this Labour party thinking, you're the opposition, you're holding the entire country that is in desperate need of an election hostage, and is it because you've got some cunning plan? Is it because you're about to release the most interesting and the the most dense and the most important manifesto in history and then they come out with these statements it's just but the, uh, you mentioned it earlier in your monologue when, when she mentioned that statistic I thought I've heard this before and sure enough I go online and I find an episode of the Ali G show in which he's interview he in, in character is interviewing this very bemused zoologist and he says and I quote why is all giraffes gay so not quite 99%. Ali G went ahead and made it a 100%. But Labour's policy advisor now, not Henry Kissinger, <laughs> but Ali, Ali G. G. <laughs> well, I should say that it turns out that one of Jeremy Corbyn's top aides, top uh, advisors... At the very top. Put, right at the very top. A giraffe neck top. <laughs> uh, sitting next to uh, Mr Corbyn is a giraffe expert. Try not to laugh. Notwithstanding collective shadow cabinet responsibility, which has in any case entirely <laughs> broken down, yes. he launched uh, a howitzer at Don Butler 
as a giraffe expert, he said, you are completely wrong. He didn't put it as brutally as this, but he as much as told her she was talking out of her backside. And a moment to think about it would tell you that if 99% of giraffes were gay, then giraffes would have died out however many hundreds of thousands of years ago that they arrived because they would have no interest in the opposite sex and no new giraffes would uh, have ever arrived. Now, we're running a poll on it. Um, it's on my Twitter feed. Is it true, as Labour's Don Butler, who wants to be a Labour leader candidate, God help by the, the way, God help us, is it true, as Labour's Don Butler claims, that 99% of giraffes are gay? At the moment, 65% of the respondents say no, <laughs> but a staggering 35% of respondents say yes. Who are those 35%? I think these are the type of people where if someone from the Labour front bench said it is day and it's clearly night, they would go out into the streets and glue themselves to a lamppost which is on because it's night and say it's day, it's day. But just that's uh, loyalism, isn't it? I mean, th th it is. Over a third think it's true. What Ali G claimed? <laughs> Just to make things even worse, um, not, I don't know if uh, Dawn Butler or Jeremy Corbyn's giraffe expert friend, well, he probably does know this, but of the various sub-varieties of giraffe, the most uh, populous one, the most common one, is something called the Rothschild giraffe, which... And if, oh, no! A name that gets the conspiracy theorist oh. wheels going, so I'm sure there oh, may no. well be some no. of them. No, no. Let's hear from Nadine in Montreal. Go ahead, Nadine. George, and hi, Adam. Um, hi this is my first time calling about uh, essentially the same topic, and the reason that I'm calling about to ask about um, Islamist groups, um, so terrorist groups, and uh, who's behind them is because listening to you, George, uh, discussing it today, especially with the callers, it just brought to my mind uh, maybe two points that I think um, maybe we should try to, to clarify. Uh, the first one is um, in relation to, to the question as to whether they are organic or, or not. I think we need to distinguish between the ideology and um, the, the, the setting up of militant groups. So the uh, if, if, we, if we look at ideology, we can trace it uh, to Saudi Arabia. So we can obviously say, yes, it stems from Wahhabism. That, that is real. Uh, it spread, um, it started out in Saudi Arabia and spread outwards, uh, especially to places like Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, and elsewhere. Um, but if we uh, take apart the question of um, ideology and who set up the groups, who organized them into such um, powerful militant groups that are able to cause so much uh, horror. I, I think that's, that's where I, I would tend to uh, think that that doesn't seem to be uh, as, um, as easily explained uh, as... Why, you know, are, are, as, as, are, as, are as Muslims as, not able to organize themselves? No, that, I don't... That's, I don't, that, I don't that, you know, that. That, that's the implication of what you're saying. No, I think they can organize uh, themselves, but not to such a sophisticated level. Because well, that, they that's a very damning uh, comment. Are you a Muslim? 
Uh, well, actually, I'm I'm an Arab Christian, but I don't say it as a um, uh, like a, to demean uh, Muslims. I just say. Well, take but a look it does at the demean them. It does demean them, even though you're trying to exculpate them. Uh, if you say that Muslims cannot organize themselves to such a sophisticated degree, then you are. I think this is Well, that, uh, George, that, that's exactly um, what you said. I'm quoting you directly. Now that flies out of the same stable. Uh, that people argued it couldn't have been Muslims that brought down the Twin Towers because Muslims are not capable of that level of organization. It is both insulting and completely untrue. Muslims okay, are perfectly me... capable of organizing themselves to an extraordinarily sophisticated level and some of them are capable of committing mass murder in, uh, in the name of their religion. No, I do agree with that. Here's, uh, please let me t uh, try to clarify what I mean. I would say the same thing if these groups were, let's say, uh, Arab Christian. I don't mean to specify uh, Muslims. And the reason I say this is because it is a fact, as an Arab, I would say that we have, in, in, in the Arab world, we have not developed uh, as far as, um, like, let's say, the, the Western world. We have serious issues. And by, by not being able to organize, I don't mean only towards bad ends, but we also are not able to organize towards good ends. We seem to have a very serious problem uh, in, in, in being effective at organizing and producing change, whether it's good or bad. And so when I say that uh, it seems to me that the sophistication of these terrorists really doesn't uh, seem organic, it's because we don't see uh, this type of sophistication in anything else in the Arab world, anything good. It just seems to always be the, the, this type of horrific violence that is so well-funded, so well-organized, and they, are, they have an advantage over everyone else because of the arms that they have, because of all the uh, vehicles they have. I mean, they, they, there is an imbalance there. No, and that's no, really I, I, no, uh, no, look, I know what you're trying to do, and I know why you're trying to do it, uh, and your intentions are not bad. I entirely accept that. But whatever vehicles they had are not better vehicles than the Iraqi army had or the Syrian army had, uh, both of whom, in the first case, they defeated in Mosul and across much of Fallujah and got to the gates of Baghdad. Uh, their weapons and their vehicles were not better than uh, the Iraqi forces they were fighting. And in the case of Syria, it was only the strength of Syrian society and its army, its people's army, uh, with allies, powerful allies, like Russia in particular, that managed to defeat not only these uh, people from the area infected with this Islamist fanatic mentality, but tens of thousands of people who came from all over the world, Uyghurs from China, Chechens from Russia, uh, people from Wales, Scotland, Ireland, England, France, Belgium, Holland, Denmark, all over the world, they descended on Syria. Almost none of them spoke a word of Arabic. Almost none of them had ever fired a gun before. But they enlisted in this uh, ISIS army. There's no point in denying that. These were Muslims who did that. 
that they are like these groups are made up of Muslims. I'm not into the conspiracy theories that say, well, actually, they're not even Muslims. I don't believe it at all. What I'm trying to say, George, is that uh, if, uh, like all, all of the investigative reporting uh, recently, especially in, in Syria, that we, uh, they uncovered armed people. Uh, depots that showed that uh, these uh, these militants, these um, jihadis, had equipment that, uh, that let's say the U.S. Uh, Army is using, sure. or even the Israelis were using. No, uh, so they, they do no have doubt. The, no doubt. There's, there, there's no disagreement. There's no disagreement with us on that. But that's a different <laughs> thing from saying they were created uh, by the West. I, I've met plenty of people in Canada, in England. Uh, I've met them the kind of people who would go. I've, I've even met some people who did go years after I, I met them. So, they, you know, and, and they don't need British people to create them. That's my point. No, what I mean is that the ideology is definitely is Islamic, even though it's distorted and horrific. I do believe that it has convinced a certain Muslims to, to believe in it and mm. to join in. Mm. It's really just the fact that the, the structure of these armies, especially since we, we know that the Mujahideen were, were created uh, or, or put together and, and uh, turned into a, a, a useful army by, uh, by, the, uh, by, by the U.S. And then we had, uh, for instance, um, I think it was the former um, British ambassador to Saudi Arabia. I, I forgot his name, but he said that uh, the, the word Al-Qaeda means the database, and it was referring to the database of Mujahideen. So it means that at the heart of the structure, uh, that's, that's what I mean, that there was... Uh, um, it doesn't... It doesn't uh, Nadine, I have to move on, because a lot of people are trying to get on. Uh, Al-Qaeda means the base, not the database. Uh, let's go to Tony in Liverpool. He's got a question for you, Adam. Tony, go ahead. Good evening, George. You'll be well, my friend. Hello, yes, Adam. thank you, sir. Um, it's very amusing, this, uh, this situation regarding Mr. Baghdadi, George, um, because the Russian uh, Ministry of Defence are uh, quite bemused at the um, proclamations of Donald Trump where he suggests that the Russians were forewarned about air movements through airspace which could or could not be controlled by the Russian um, aviation. Um, also, as far as they're aware, They've checked their radar, and no air movements took place on the day of these so-called raids. And um, for me, it seems it seems quite remarkable and almost um, similar, you could say, parallels the situation regarding Mr. Bin Laden, who uh, was uh, apparently um, buried at sea. And now Donald Trump said he, he watched this. You know, it was like watching a movie. Um, he said it was amazing to watch it all. I'm sure he will have no compunction then about releasing this footage to well, the that, rest of the world. Well, that's the key point. Thanks, Tony. That's the key point, Adam, isn't it? That unless they show us, uh, can be redacted, the worst bits can be blurred or whatever, but you can't just take the word of US politicians uh, telling us they watched a snuff movie and that the victim of the snuff movie behaved in this uh, kind of way at the end, uh, hunted by talented canines, as Donald Trump actually literally put it. And then he said, I'd prefer to refer to them as dogs, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, the, shows the common touch. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Tony's got a point, isn't he? Unless we see uh, the goods, yes. uh, a lot of people won't believe it. Well, I think 
we're thankfully living in an age where the majority of people from all walks of life are saying we want to see something before we believe something. That goes for stupid claims about the end of the world made from naked hippies chaining themselves to the number nine bus in Piccadilly Circus and getting apparently remunerated for it as one of the leaders said. It goes for Hillary Clinton saying that uh, the Russians invented some te telepathic magic ball in the sky that controls all of the hundreds of millions of American voters, and the same goes for the Baghdadi raid. People want to see, as you said, at least some of the footage to give them an idea that uh, it's authentic and that it happened. I mean, my own view is that the only good terrorist is a dead one. So if he is dead, and I don't know where the polls are now, but if he's dead, that's certainly a good thing. I want all ISIS to be dead. I want all terrorists to be dead. All good people ought to say the same. There's no use at all in trying to be clever by rationalizing terror. It's all evil, but it is important that people hold the powerful to account. And with this, show us a photo of what remains of the apparently mutilated and uh, bits blown up of the body, and show us some of the video from this raid that Trump and his colleagues uh, watched. And I think that maybe we will see it. But well, it's interesting what Tony tell. said. I didn't know that that the Russian Defense Ministry is saying there were no air movements. In that area, they're being a bit coy. I don't know if that's the exact statement. He might know yeah. uh, well. Well, we'll try and get it uh, before yes. the end. Uh, Tony, thanks for that. Marie McFarlane, my old friend, says a music question for you tonight. Oh, Ask good. Adam. Sparks is my all-time favourite band of two brothers. At a sports day in 1978, I won their 12-inch single, number one song in heaven. Where? Are you a fan yourself? No, I, I hate to disappoint, but I'm not, not a huge fan. And I wonder what actually happened to Sparks. I don't even remember them. Where, who were Sparks? Oh, God. They were sort of big, I think, mid-70s to sort of early 80s. What genre? How would I describe it? On the, on the, on the, on the, lighter, on the lighter side of things, is how mm, I'd describe mm. it. I don't know what's happened to them, though. Maybe someone can call in and Does tell us Does anyone know what happened to Sparks? We'd like to know if even Adam doesn't know what happened to them, scarcely anyone <laughs> will. Hassan Diwan says, could an argument not be made that we have in no-deal Brexit since the referendum until a deal is made? I'm not sure I understand that question. I think I do, because it's something I think I either vaguely mentioned here last week or the week before. If I were Boris Johnson, and I personally, I don't like Boris, I like Boris, I don't like his treaty, that's my position. But if I were Boris Johnson, I would say this, I would say um, to the EU, look, we both want this treaty to go through. These opposition obstructionists are just being a pain in both of our backsides. Let's do a fast one on everyone. We'll have a no-deal Brexit, but when a so-called no-deal Brexit takes place, all that means is instantly WTO terms uh, come into force, but the head of uh, government in the UK, Boris Johnson, can talk with the European Commission and strike a deal. Well, presto, there's a deal, there's a treaty that both sides already like. They can implement it within hours after a so-called uh, no-deal Brexit. So the no-deal Brexit takes place at midnight 
and the Boris Johnson EU deal kicks in at one minute past midnight. I think that could be what he's thinking because that way the whole Gina Miller thing with Parliament having to approve it goes out the window because the no deal will have gone into effect. But who's to say what no deal will look like? Well, it's up to the EU and it's up to Boris Johnson. Both the EU and Boris Johnson like this treaty. He could well have that up his sleeve. How very interesting. Thanks, Hassan, at D1 for that. Turns out that Sparks, the male brothers, M-A-Y-L-E, are making a comeback. Are they? Maybe Marie is on that trail. Maybe that's what she wanted me to have to reveal. Coming to a town uh, you, perhaps. Is, sorry? This town big enough for both of us. Was that their big hit? I don't know. Anyway, look. Anyway, look. Uh... Is it true, as Labour's Don Butler claims, that 99% of giraffes are gay? Where are we The now? number of people who say yes is rising. 37% mm. of the people back Don Butler. 63% say no, they back Jeremy Corbyn's giraffe expert. It's up from 35% 10 minutes ago. Who are these people? Now, the Russian Ministry of Defence has announced that it does not have reliable information regarding the U.S. operation in Idlib, which allegedly resulted in the death of terrorist leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The Defense Ministry uh, said uh, that uh, they had uh, no information uh, about it. Uh, Donald Trump had claimed that Russia treated us great. They opened up. We had to fly over certain Russian-held areas. Russia was great, said Trump. But the defense ministry in Russia said no airstrikes performed by U.S. aircraft or aircraft belonging to the so-called international coalition were detective on Saturday or during the following days, a statement by a major general uh, said. Since the moment of the final Daesh defeat at the hands of the Syrian government army supported by Russian aerospace forces in early 2018, Yet another death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi does not have any strategic importance regarding the situation in Syria or the actions of the remaining terrorists in Idlib. I think we're all agreed on that, aren't we? That actually he was merely a symbol, an emblem, certainly by the end. It, 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 it doesn't change the military, political, ideological uh, situation really at all, does it? Well, no, I mean... ISIS as a military force and as a force that could actually claim to rule over vast swaths of Syrian and Iraqi territory, that's been defeated for the better part of a year now, in some areas for even longer, and as such, the leader of such a group would, by definition, be less and less powerful. And even before that, the man who once famously appeared at a mosque in Mosul with all the cameras on him, he'd become something of a hermit and one of the photos that's circulating that looks like a photo of Russell Brand in a Soho shisha bar, someone pointed out that the pillows around him were Afghan and the way that the design and the setup, it wasn't something apparently that one would necessarily see in the Arab world. So all sorts of conspiracy theories yeah, floating yeah, around. Grow and grow. But, uh, but there's a lot of conspiracy theories about giraffes. Mike in more South Carolina. <laughs> Mike in South Carolina wants to talk about giraffes, and he's Lovely. welcome. Mike, go ahead. Hey, George, Adam, how y'all doing? Oh, great. Doing Good well. to hear from you. Go on. 
Okay. I, I mean, I know I was about how Baghdadi is important, and, uh, you know, of course, it's never made any difference when any of the uh, Islamic leaders have been killed. You could go back 20 years and look and see. That's the situation only gets worse and worse. But let's talk about something really important like giraffe. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I know that uh, they're saying that uh, there's no way this species can survive with 99% of the giraffes being gay, but... Uh, no, without, I was, I was no without IVF. Uh, yeah, well, well, not necessarily, because this is a point I want to bring out. Uh, are either of you guys uh, uh, experts in animal husbandry? Do you, do you understand that uh, one, bull, one bull can service a field full of cows, and, and one rooster can service all the chickens uh, that there are? So... It's not entirely impossible that this could be the case. All well, male, statistically, all statistically, that might challenge my earlier confident assertions, but um, it's not the case that one giraffe bull is impregnating. I'm not going to use your rather, I don't know, utilitarian phrase uh, of servicing, uh, but impregnating uh, all the giraffes because all the animal shows I've ever seen uh, giraffes are couples. They're going around man and wife. They're not. No? If you look at, if you look at any, any uh, animal show on TV, you can see that all males from deer to bulls to, you know, giraffes also, they fight for the rights to mate. Yeah, but 99% is a very specific number. That would leave only... You don't think one rooster service no, by nine chickens? That would only leave... One giraffe in a hundred that was interested well. interested in all these beautiful female giraffes. That doesn't seem likely to me. What are they fighting over then? If they're not interested in the in the, well, the female see, that giraffes. Only two. I, that's two out of two hundred. I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Okay, well, we'll investigate it further, but does it not weaken your resolve any that it was Ali G who first came up with this number? Oh, I... I, I, I Ali G, Sasha Baron Cohen. I mean, he, he, brought up, he, he was taking the mickey out of a zoologist with it. And somehow it's now, yeah, now Labour front bench policy. <laughs> <laughs> You know, George, you know, George, I'm just playing the devil's advocate here. I know, That's right. I, know, you know I know, I know, and uh, good luck to that uh, bull, Giraffe. Uh, Mike, uh, thank you very much. We, we mustn't go further down that line. Technology uh, lessons in high places, someone had to say. Technology lessons. Now, uh, on the vote so far, 65% say that it's not true, but still 35% say that it is. Uh, Liam Ryan very clever man in Ireland, says, what are the main obstacles, Adam, facing the One Belt, One Road project? It makes sense to me as a realisable project. Yes. Well, I think the biggest obstacle for Belt and Road is the biggest obstacle for men, women, life and infrastructure of all things, and that's time. It's a project that in order to reach its full fruition, it's going to take a while in spite of the fact that the Chinese industrialists have proved themselves to be very quick with infrastructure and very responsive with financing that infrastructure. The problem with things that take time is, is cultural at some level. Chinese 
culture is very much one that takes the long view. It matters not if this generation gets it done, so long as the next generation can stand on the shoulders of this one and then get it done. Not all cultures are like that, and more worryingly, the people that know this are spewing a lot of propaganda at, all, at other countries saying this will never happen, it's a money drain, it's a debt trap, but no business is successful from day one. A business really, in order to get true sustainable uh, success over a long period of time, it's got to be able to look to the long view, and that's one of the reasons Chinese businesses are successful. So I think people have got to be patient and they've got to be diligent, but the avarice within the human heart uh, is a danger in that respect, the one that can, I think, be overcome. There's a legend on the line. Make way, make way. It's the legend that is Damien in Brighton, who wants to argue with Adam on Brexit. I'm glad it's you he wants to argue with. <laughs> Welcome, Damien. Good evening, George. Good evening. Um, well, a debate more than an argument, I hope. Okay. Um, Adam, um, you, you're on the record as saying that 95% of people uh, who are against no deal are actually against Brexit. Yep. Um, and I would, I don't know if that figures, you know, it, I'll accept that. Um, I'm, I'm the 5% who is against no deal but isn't against Brexit. Okay, we accept that. We follow your writing on Twitter, prolific indeed. Go ahead. Well, the point I wanted to make is um, that... If I'm a, I am a democratic socialist, therefore uh, accepting ballot results is, is a foundational principle. So I accept the referendum result. Um, and in, in principle, I would agree with a no-deal Brexit. But that is dependent upon the state of the British economy. And I would argue that the state of the British economy currently is too weak to be able to shrug off uh, a no-deal exit. Okay, Adam? Well, when Singapore was kicked out of Malaysia and Lee Kuan Yew didn't want that, he didn't beg for a do-over. He said, let's make Singapore the best Singapore we can make on our own, making new partnerships across the world. Lo and behold, Singapore became more successful than its bigger brother next door. In general, though, I think there's something that frankly frightens the hell out of me, and I don't mean that in a personal way, but I hear this from many people who aren't trying to be frightening. The idea that, that Britain isn't strong enough to be independent, the fact that it somehow isn't an urgent matter to break free of this colonial straitjacket called the European Union. All nations, because this for me, above for the many reasons I'm for Brexit, it's my belief in the sovereignty and the indivisibility of the nation state that I'm for Brexit more than anything else. Britain like all other nations, needs to stand and fall on its own. Its economy needs to be the economy that Britain makes and that the British voters dictate, not that some technocrat in Brussels decides, not that some veto-wielding former dictator in Eastern Europe dictates, but the British people, a country that's been around for centuries, I'm talking about England, but Britain itself has been around for quite a few centuries, more than a lot of countries, this idea that one needs to tip out of bondage rather than break through the doors is to me frightening because it shows that matters that are ultimately less significant than national sovereignty are more significant in the minds of some people. Last word to you, Damien. 
Okay, um, I was just going to very quickly uh, look at the statistics. And according to the HMRC, 38% of the British workforce earn 20K or less a year gross. That's not including the black economy. So I think we can estimate that almost half of the UK workforce earns less than £20,000 a year. Tariffs will increase prices. There is no room for people. That's going to push millions of people over the edge. Um, so the, and that is reflected in our current economic statistics, uh, low productivity, low investment, low growth. Uh, in a consumer economy, that's well, uh, but compared to who, uh, Damien? I mean, you're painting a picture there uh, which is uh, partial because it does not compare it to the other countries in the European Union. So if I tell you that however low our growth is, it's higher than the growth in France, it's higher than the growth in Germany, it's higher than the growth in Italy, it's higher than the growth in Spain, uh, then that gives a more complete picture, doesn't it? No, I accept that there are, you know, other economies at play, but I'm only interested in the, the UK economy. Yeah, but the, the only two economies with a higher growth rate than us in the last quarter were the United States and Canada. Yeah, but it's, it's not saying much when you're talking less than 2% growth, George. So I think, I think my point is that I, I want to, us to leave, and we must leave. Uh, the, the integrity of our democracy depends on it. Um, but I'm in favour of leaving with a Labour Brexit deal, which has a customs union, uh, which allows us to have tariff-free trips. That's not Brexit. Trade. The customs union isn't Brexit. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a customs union implies remaining in the single market. Uh, it will keep goods expensive. It, it, it would mean that we could not capitalise on the cheap... You're worried about tariffs making things from the EU more expensive. What about all the things we could now... We could then buy... Uh, from the rest of the world more cheaply than we're buying from the European Union, but are currently prohibited from doing. Can I just make a final point about what my, my, my real concern is here? Yeah. <clears throat> my real concern is that the UK economy represents almost one-fifth of the total GDP of EU states. It, just think of Greece on a Europe-wide scale. My concern is that there is the potential that if we leave with no deal, that that will trigger a recession across Europe, which it has the potential to be a Great Depression. And that's something that I think we both sides would want to avoid at all costs. Lars asks, Adam, why does Adam love Singapore? Singapore is maybe a good place to visit, but I know that being poor in Singapore is absolutely horrible. Well, being poor everywhere is horrible, but being poor in Singapore is better than being poor in any other country in the ASEAN group of nations, better than almost anywhere in Asia, and that automatically means better than anywhere in Africa and most places in Latin America, even quite a lot of Europe. If you see the, the old Soviet-era council estates in Eastern Europe versus the housing for the poor in Singapore, Singapore is better, and of course you've got better weather, but that's not the reason I like Singapore. I like Singapore because in the words of the country's founder, Lee Kuan Yew, he took it from third world to first. And he did it through abandoning the, any notion of ideology, abandoning any notion of affirmative action or racialism, and instead said, we're all going to go forward together. Education is the key. Productivity is the key. And he turned the place into an economic and social paradise.
low crime, high economic growth that frequently defies trends. The first uh, country in Southeast Asia to escape the Asian financial crisis of uh, 97. And so for, there's so many reasons, but when you look at it, the key is in the results. Singapore is good, and it's a place where almost everyone in Southeast Asia wants to live, which, is, which actually brings me quickly, I'll make a quick point back to Brexit. People are talking about oh, workers' rights in Britain are going to be so terrible compared to other countries in the EU. Then why is it that many people from other countries in the EU want to work in Britain if the standards are so low? It doesn't follow any logical train of thought. Let's go to New York City. What's not to love? And hear from Sam. Go ahead, Sam. Sure, it's always good to be talking to you. And you, sir. Go ahead. Well, so I just had one question, um, and then I just wanted to make one point towards uh, what you and Patrick Pogram were discussing. Yeah, go on. So the first thing I have is that Patrick Pogram, uh, many people might not be aware of this, but he was one of the very first people who pointed out after the... Uh, I'm really sorry, Sam. I'm really sorry. It's a very bad line. Uh, perhaps our people can get back to you. Let's go to Simon in London. Simon, go ahead. Hi, Dean, George. You okay? Okay, thank you very much. That's good, yes. Well, I've worked in Saudi Arabia for four years in the oil and gas industry, and it was horrible. Um, basically, from my experience there, they've dumbed down Islam to something that's basically comparable to the Dark Ages, you know. Uh, during our Dark Ages, Islam was responsible for uh, mathematics, astronomy, uh, progress in music and science. But as I said, they've turned it into something completely barbaric and medieval. Um, there are people there who are even 30 years old, are literally childlike. They're restricted from doing anything and everything. Therefore, I'm not surprised that with the lack of answers, the lack of being allowed to live, these guys end up turning into murdering, head-chopping terrorists recruited by Al-Qaeda, Daesh, ISIS, and other such organizations. It's also interesting, Saudi Arabia also fund a lot of mosques in the UK. And if you remember during the Arab Spring, when Syria, uh, during the Syrian crisis, there was a, uh, there was a lot of um, uh, persuasion by, by uh, a lot of people on the internet saying that the, the Battle of Al-Sham was taking place. This is supposedly the battle between the Sunnis and Shias that would take place during the end of days. There were videos all over YouTube persuading Muslims to make their way to Syria. The intention uh, seems to have been to recruit as many people from Muslim backgrounds who had disenfranchised with the Western system and the UK system um, to go to Syria and fight battles for them. Of course, the worst thing about this is is that the government um, allowed this to happen and uh, a lot of these terrorists came back and created havoc in both Europe and the UK as well. Well, our government has the closest possible relations with Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. We're yes. friends with Saudi Arabia and enemies with Syria. Go figure. Completely agree with you there. Yes. Syria, which apart from many other things, is a perfect haven for Christians, Arab Christians, where the religion and its practitioners are cherished, not just protected, tolerated, but actually cherished as a part of the multicultural mosaic in Syria. We were supporting Saudi-funded head choppers against people for whom Christianity and Christians are a vital, indispensable, indivisible part of their heritage and society. Adam? Well, it, it, the greatest tragedy 
after the human tragedy, because the human tragedy is always foremost, but after that, it's the cultural tragedy, because when so many parts of the world are cauldrons of hatred, Syria was the opposite. It was this kind of cornucopia of ancient cultures, all of which are indigenous, and not many countries can say that they've got all of these beautiful ancient cultures, and all of them are indigenous to the country, and moreover, to the region. The best hope that one could have is that all of the people currently in Syria who aren't Syrians will leave and that the country that's weathered so many thousands of years of history will be able to weather this too. Beautifully put. Let's try Sam in New York again. Sam, are you there? Yeah, is that any better, George? Yes, it is better. I beg your pardon. Go ahead. Okay, so I just had two quick questions. Um, one is that now there's a deal between Turkey, uh, Syria, Russia uh, on that uh, for the border. Yeah. Eventually, it will return to the Syrian government after the Kurds move back, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my question is, uh, the first question I have is, having, said, uh, having seen that, uh, we've seen Assad on uh, the Idlib front lines talking about the upcoming Idlib uh, offensive. Yeah. Now that they're Turkish military posts, how can the Syrian army regain Idlib knowing that they'll have to directly confront Turkey and at the same time try to keep that deal in the northern part of Syria, you know, for, uh, to stop the Turkish from moving forward that they have with Russia. So that's my first question. Uh, well, let me deal with that first. The Syrian government position is clear and it's supported entirely by Russia, which is that every last inch of Syrian territory must be recovered, will be recovered. However long it takes, whoever has to be fought in order for that recovery to take place. And that's what you'd do in your country. It's what we do in our country. Am I right, Sam? Uh, well, now that the veil is off about how these guys, it's the last rebel held. And I, I kid you not, when, and I'm glad you're on this new show, uh, because Sky News had done a video where they had literally interviewed HTS and called them rebels and said, oh, no, no, yeah, these yeah. are rebels. I couldn't believe myself. But uh, now, if the Syrian government does the offensive, uh, you know, when Turkey uh, presumably pulls its forces back, is the media going to still continually say the rebel-held area of Israel? Oh, they will. Knowing they'll that these turn, same rebels are the ones. Yeah, they'll do. Okay. They'll do so exactly. They'll, they'll do exactly what they did in Aleppo, but the mm -hmm. opposite of what they did in Mosul, when Mosul mm -hmm. was being leveled by American, British, French, and other airplanes. Uh, to destroy the Islamic State there. The uh, people who were doing the bombing were the heroes, and the people on the ground being bombed were the villains. In Aleppo, it was entirely the other way around. So we can look for a rerun. It'll be the last hospital in Idlib, uh, the, the, the last this, the last that, uh, lying uh, in the hands of uh, rebels. Am I right, Adam? Absolutely. And just to bring it back from the very sublime and the tragic back to the ridiculous, the, the, the media in general can't even agree on what to call what objectively one would call a WTO terms Brexit. Some call it a hard Brexit, some call it a no-deal Brexit, I would call it a clean-break Brexit, and others yet call it a cliff edge or crashing out. So if they can't even agree on what to call a country that founded 
co-founded the WTO, trading on WTO terms, how can you expect them to have clarity of language through the fog of war? Except it's not really, is it, Sam, uh, a lack of clarity. It's deliberate obfuscation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it is Orwellian ob ob obfuscation. They, uh, they know, they knew all along uh, that the so-called moderate rebels in Syria were, in fact, Islamist fanatic head-chopping, heart-eating extremists. They just pretended otherwise. Am I right? Well, I think as uh, you're 100% correct, Max Blumenthal did a great video, if you get a chance to check it out on the Gray Zone, where he's even going through the Twitters of uh, these people who wrote these puff pieces for these uh, terrorists, and they're now tweeting, oh, I can't believe these people are doing this type of genocide in, uh, you know, to the Kurds. And it's like, no, we've been pointing out. I just want to make one last point uh, real quick. Uh, so to the point with, with Patrick was talking about the foundation of ISIS. Uh, no, personally, I'm, I'm, I don't think that Israel created ISIS. I think it was from the power vacuum of the U.S. invasion to the former Ba'athists using these ISIS guys to try to get in power, to Turkey buying oil from them, etc. Uh, what I will say, though, the reason there's, I think there is uh, some suspicion is because you can look up, there was an article, I forget by who, but it was this very neocon Likud member of Israel who wrote essentially saying we shouldn't defeat ISIS, we should weaken it. Because as long as the, all these Arab countries are fighting uh, ISIS, you know, Israel doesn't have to worry. Okay. Uh, to your point, when you make said way, Israel make doesn't way, fund anyone... Make way, order, make way. There's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Go ahead, quickly. Um, I tried to get my moat badge, and I, um, I put the info... Email, info at georgegalloway.com. Yeah, we, we got it. There's just a backlog, uh, Norma. There was... No, they didn't. They never received my um, email. Really? They refused it. I did it again. They refused it. My goodness. So I thought, uh, I've done it wrong. What have I done wrong? I'll tell you what. We'll contact you on DM uh, about that, okay? Uh, I'll okay. DM, I'll DM Fagash Flow, which is your account and one that everybody, absolutely everybody, <laughs> should be following. Uh, now, the polls have closed. Is it true, as Labour's Don Butler said, that 99% of giraffes are gay? 35% say yes, 65% say no. We need a Though, second referendum. Uh, a new referendum. But as one person pointed out, uh, I, uh, yes, Patty Leary says, I chose yes on your poll because you didn't include are they bisexual? which is surely true, since all animals are. Patty, uh, I can see the logic in what you're saying there, um, although that might be a poll for next week. Are all animals Don't worry, Gina Miller's bisexual. going to cancel this one. All... Anyway, is al-Baghdadi really dead? The poll ended with 48% thinking he's dead, 52% thinking he's still alive. A crisis of information... Adam, in the uh, political class, in their media echo chambers, uh, people need a lot more convincing of what our rulers say than they did back in the day when Alastair Campbell told us that Iraq was 45 minutes away from attacking us with weapons of mass destruction and that Iraq was working on nuclear, chemical and biological weapons. You get my drift. Here, I think you do. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you too. And if it was 
tell someone else, come back next week at the same time in any one of the same places that you've been watching and listening so far.